Why don't we pray and then we'll open up the Word of God. Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you for the ways that the, the church has advanced during these months, especially during COVID when there was so much concern over what would happen, not just in our church, but in churches throughout America. We thank you for the ways that you have blessed this church right here and allowed um, things to go on so extremely well during the time it could be so difficult. We thank you for all your provision for the church, for the ongoing vision, for the ability we have to stay together, whether it's uh, in a virtual sense or in an in-person sense. We thank you that you are moving your kingdom forward and that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And Lord, we know and you know that we always as a church want to be about Jesus Christ. We always want to be about the Word of God. And so as we open up the Word today, I pray that that you might speak through your Word. I pray that you might bring the message home to people's hearts through, through me, the vessel, who is attempting to expound upon and preach the Word of God. Would you allow your message to come home to every heart in this place today, from the youngest to the oldest? May you give encouragement where there's fear. May you give faith where there's anxiety. May you give peace where there's excitement and anticipation. May you give an extra push to to be lights in this dark world around us and to be um, evangelists taking the gospel to the people that you've placed around us. We submit ourselves to you again today, Lord God, and Thank you for the chance to know you and to love you and to serve you in this present world while all the time looking forward to that world to come where sin will be completely and forever vanquished and there won't be even a hint of the fallen nature, the stain of sin um, ever again in that place. How we look forward to that, but Lord, we don't want to so look forward to that that we forget to be faithful in the here and now as we fight the good fight of faith day in and day out. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, am I the only one here that likes the songs of Christmas? I hope not. Good. Um, I certainly love the songs of Christmas. I remember mentioning a few weeks ago that when we were in the Philippines one time in early fall, we heard beautiful, charming carols in a five-star hotel in, in, in downtown Manila. A moody radio I think they used to, like right after Thanksgiving, start like 24-hour Christmas carols. Now I think you have to find it on a digital radio station that they have. Uh, personally, I am not a person that listens to music all the time. Um, some of you are. Some of you walk around with earbuds in your ears. I, that's not me. It never has been, never will be. But I do like to listen to Christmas music when I get a chance. And sometimes when I'm working on a sermon this time of year, I use my, my it's a, a Christmas music without words playlist that I've set up in my iTunes account because I can't work on a sermon if there's words. It's impossible. So I have a certain playlist of Christmas music without words so I can continue to think and and develop what I'm working on. Even people who don't seem to have a personal relationship with Jesus seem to love hearing the music of Christmas. It's always amazed me that you can go into the most secular of settings at Christmas time and hear songs like the Hallelujah Chorus, Exalting Jesus, and some of the great Christmas carols that very succinctly share the gospel message, and everybody's humming along, enjoying it, 
while they were hearing the timeless message that God has sent his son into the world to be our savior. Many of the best-known singers, whoever they are, you know, they have to put out their own Christmas album. Well, the Christmas story itself in the scripture is full of songs. The song of the heavenly hosts announcing to the shepherds the birth of Jesus, the song of Mary, and the song of Zechariah. Last Sunday, um, in my absence, though you did see this on the screen, I was preaching uh, virtually, because we've all gotten so used to that, it seemed like a natural thing to do last Sunday. We looked at Mary's song, the song that she sang after she visited her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, of course, was pregnant with John the Baptist, a few more months along, I think six months further along than Mary was. And as soon as Mary entered her home, the baby, the baby John the Baptist that Elizabeth was carrying, leaped in her womb. And the Bible says at that point that Elizabeth, the mother, was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary, in response, sang the song of praise that we looked at last Sunday morning. This morning, I want to look together at the song of Zechariah, the song that he sang. And again, he was the father of John the Baptist. And this song was not just a, you know, it wasn't just a sudden inspiration to sit down and write a song, but it was a prophecy given to, to, to Zechariah through his lips of the Holy Spirit. So Zechariah was the mouthpiece, and the Holy Spirit was speaking through Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? He was a priest. He was married to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was barren. But one day, when Zechariah was burning incense before the Lord, an angel came to him. Zechariah did not readily believe the angel, because the angel said, you and your wife are going to have a baby. Now, they had never had a child, and they were both well up in years. They were advanced in years. And when the angel tells Zechariah, you and Elizabeth are going to have a child, Zechariah had a hard time believing that. And because he didn't believe, he was struck with the inability to speak until the baby was born. Uh, by the way, Zechariah stands in contrast to Mary. And Mary was called blessed because she believed that all the Lord spoke to her would be fulfilled, while Zechariah, a priest, a man of God, struggled believing what the Lord had told him, and he, he had a consequence for that. But when John was born, when that miracle baby was born, his tongue was unloosed, and he immediately was filled with the Holy Spirit and uttered the song that we're going to read in a minute. In the same way that the Holy Spirit infilled his wife, Elizabeth, causing her baby to leap in the womb when she met Mary, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit as he prophesies. And this song that we're about to read is called the Benedictus, and that's from its first word in the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is a translation of the scripture in Latin um, used by the Roman Catholic Church. And the first word in Zechariah's song is the word blessed, and Benedictus as this song has come to be known, 
is late Latin for the word blessed. So let's read that song, our text for today, from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. You see, that's where I got that prophecy from. I'm not making this up. The Bible says it was a prophecy. It wasn't just his best efforts at creating his own Christmas song. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. That's incredible. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, referring to little John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. There are several wonderful themes in this song of Zechariah. The main one is coming or visitation, that God is coming to his people, that God is visiting his people. Verse 68 um, says, the Lord God of Israel has visited his people. That's in the ESV version. In NIV, it says the Lord has come to his people. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. But we sing Alleluia because the Lord has seen our peril. He's seen our predicament and he has come. He has visited his people. Verse 78 says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. After years, generations of darkness, God has now appeared to his people. He's appeared on the scene. Elizabeth, who was barren, is carrying the one who would go before the Lord to prepare the way. Mary is pregnant now by a divine conception. The Holy Spirit caused her to conceive. She's a virgin. It caused her to conceive so that she would not only bear the Son of God, but be able to bear a baby that would be born sinless. That's why the virgin birth is so essential to our faith as Christians. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. I don't know if we can easily really appreciate the significance of this, the significance of how long the people had waited, how long they've been passing down among themselves the promises, how many times they had read Isaiah and wondered, when, oh when, oh when. You and I get tired of waiting sometimes. We might have waited a long time. We might have waited a long time to come to America with our family. And some of you here today, you waited a long time to come to America with your families. We have may, might have waited a long time to get married or waited a long time to have our own baby. We may have waited to 
finish high school and, and get the long-awaited job. But we're talking here of generations of faithful Jews awaiting the long-promised Messiah. There have been years of bondage, years of misery, years of hardship, years of oppression. Generations had come and gone, have been born and died while they passed the promise onto their offspring, and yet nothing had happened until now. And now they are on the cusp of God fulfilling what had been long passed down from, from parents to children and to their children. An angel had appeared to Zechariah and said that his old barren wife would conceive. And again, the scripture says she was advanced in years. Now, this announcement, Zechariah got, it was nothing like getting a pregnancy test from the dollar store and having it come up positive. This is way more profound, this event that happened to Zechariah and Elizabeth. This baby would not be any ordinary baby. Many would rejoice at his birth. He would be great before the Lord. He would turn the, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Luke says, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And now the archangel Gabriel, Gabriel is not just some underling angel like Clarence. Let's get that in the open right now. We're talking Gabriel. The Bible says that Gabriel was an archangel who dwells in the presence of God. And whenever I read that, when I'm reading it to you right now, I get goosebumps to think of an archangel who dwells in the presence of God. And this was the angel that appears to a young virgin and announces that she is going to give birth to the Messiah the Holy Son of God. So God is visiting his people. God is coming to his people. The sunrise would visit them from on high. We read in the book of Hebrews long ago at many times, and in many ways, can I add, over many generations, God spoke to our fathers by his prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. After all these years, God is keeping his promises. A Messiah had long been promised, starting with Adam and Eve. Right after their first sin in the Garden of Eden, God gave the very first promise that he would come to rescue, that he would come and visit. It was a very rudimentary promise, if I can call it that way. I'm not denigrating it. A very rudimentary, very veiled promise when it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A reference to, to Satan causing the crucifixion of Jesus, but that Jesus would conquer Satan. He would be the winner. God had also subsequently made a covenant with Abraham. 
And this is mentioned in our text today, in the prophecy that Zechariah proclaims in verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. The Holy Spirit is calling Zechariah to, to hearken back to all the times in history when God had said, I will visit my people. I will do something about their predicament. And that's a clear reference to Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So God is speaking to Abraham there about through his descendants, all the world will be blessed because it would be through a Savior that would ultimately come from his loins that all of the world would be blessed. And God reiterated that covenant with David, a man for God's own heart, that there would always be one to sit upon the throne of David. We read about this in the book of Isaiah. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When Gabriel spoke to Mary, Gabriel said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him what? The throne of his father, David, tying everything together. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And I hear the, the chorus of the hallelujah chorus at this kingdom. There would be no end to the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we come to Zechariah's prophecy that he utters, and he reiterates this connection with the promise to David. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And we so often say to, to you, my friends, the Bible is so absolutely cohesive from cover to cover. It all fits together. Why? Because it's inspired by God. It's not just a human book. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And everything threads together perfectly. You won't find contradictions in the Scripture. You won't find um, themes that are presented that later are canceled out because God is working throughout history to accomplish his end, his purpose, which is all things being at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. Zechariah's song is lauding God. He's praising God for being a God who keeps his promises. God is promising to save. And salvation, as presented here in Zechariah's song, and not only here, is it's a two-pronged kind of salvation. It does include deliverance from our enemies. It includes deliverance from oppression. But the second prong is deliverance from sin, redemption, forgiveness of our own sin. 
And yes, God is concerned about both. He is concerned about both. Um, I noticed that in that wonderful psalm we just sang, Oh Holy Night, there's a line that we sang that said, and in, his, and in his name, all oppression cease. That's the same thing we're talking about here in Zechariah's song. It's one of the themes of the Christmas story, that God is delivering us from our enemies, as well as delivering us from our own personal sin against him. God is always concerned about injustice and oppression. We hear a lot about that in, in the news, don't we? And yes, God is concerned. God never sees an injustice that, that he enjoys and he approves of. It grieves his heart. It's contrary. It's wrong. He is concerned about the widow. He's concerned about the orphan. He's concerned about the ones who have no voice at all. He's concerned about the ones who mourn, the ones who are poor in spirit, the ones who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And one day, we can be absolutely sure that God will right every social wrong. There will not be injustice in heaven. There will not be oppression in heaven. He will make all things right. But the other part of salvation is certainly in my judgment, it's more important and more pressing, and that's to save us from our personal sins. And he includes here this in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. For us to be only concerned about social justice, but to forget that we need a Savior, that our sins have separated us from God, is to make a grave mistake. To be only thankful that God's forgiven me and redeemed me, and I stand right before him, but to not care about social justice is missing part of the picture too. So both are important, but I would say the starting point is always our own personal relationship with God. Coming to grips with the fact that we are sinners, that we need salvation. And it's not a collective salvation, not a societal salvation. We need personal salvation from our sins. And that puts us in a spot where, yes, we can impact the social injustices of the world, which obviously concern God and grieve him. Our bigger problem, I'm going to say this twice. I have it starred, asterisked in my notes. Our bigger problem is never our circumstances. Our bigger problem is always our personal sin that separates us from God. Let me say it again. Our bigger problem is never our circumstances. Everybody wants to blame their circumstances, worry about their circumstances. Have you fixed their circumstances? That's never the bigger problem. The bigger problem is always our personal sin that separates us from God. I mean, people can take our life, but they cannot take a relationship that we have with God through His Son, Jesus, assuming we have one. Please notice that Zechariah is not just sharing some emotional thoughts here. He's not just sharing some nice hallmark thoughts that could be put on a greeting card. He is not merely so overwhelmed that finally my wife and I were going to have a baby and I can't hardly contain my excitement. Far from it. He is prophesying under the power of the Holy Spirit, indicating the significance of his son who would prepare the way for the Messiah and ultimately the significance of the Savior 
himself. He is uttering not his own thoughts as a soon-to-be happy father, but he's uttering the very thoughts of God. And he speaks over his child in verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. How would he prepare the way? Well, it says very clearly, he would prepare the way for Jesus by giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's always a starting point. When we talk to people, the starting point is always, where are they before God? Are they separated from God? Do they have a Savior that's made them righteous? That's always the most important thing. That's always where we want to start when we're witnessing to people. This is what John was doing when he walked in the desert crying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and now everything's going to be wonderful. It doesn't say that. It says repent and believe in the gospel. It's a very wonderful message, a very serious message. It's an in-your-face kind of message. Now is the time to repent and believe the gospel that you might be reconciled to God. Last Sunday, when Mark opened the service while laying the second candle, the essence of the scripture he read was repent and be baptized. That was the preparation for the first coming of the Messiah. And it's still our preparation for the Messiah today to repent, be baptized, make sure our heart is right before the Lord. With all the things that are happening in our world right now and all the opinions and, and all the concerns, more and more, I'm just saying, Lord, what we need is, is a heart change in the hearts of people. We need revival. We need uh, an answer to, to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people are called by name, will humble themselves and, and pray. I will hear from heaven. I will hear their land. We, need, we don't need the right person in the White House or just the right number of certain justices in the Supreme Court or the right laws passed. And I'm not saying that's not important. What we really need is for the hearts of the people to change. We need voices that will say, repent and believe the gospel. I've been um, concerned for a number of years at, at the number of old-time, it's not a great term, but old-time evangelist types. The voices of like the Billy Grahams, where the whole world knows the the name Billy Graham, they know the message of Billy Graham. It's a simple gospel message about Jesus. He didn't get all caught up in all kinds of other um, philosophies of the day. and po- He didn't. And I think one, one or a few times he made a mistake and did, and he later repented of that because he felt like he was getting pulled away from the central message about Jesus. That Jesus came to be your Savior. Repent and believe the gospel. And a lot of these these older evangelist types have now passed away. I keep wondering, Lord, why aren't there some, some new Billy Grahams appearing? Why aren't there? Um, I don't know why there isn't. I don't know if God's doing, going to do something in a different way or if, if we're just so wayward as a world that, that there's making a room for I don't know. But I keep thinking, Lord, I wish there were some of these voices that are known nationwide, known globally, that have a simple message about the gospel of Jesus. That aren't presenting a bunch of other stuff, getting people all riled up, but are talking about Jesus like Billy Graham did. Okay, that wasn't in my notes, but it's what I feel so, so passionately. 
Uh, our biggest problem is always our relationship with God, not our circumstances. Okay, <clears throat> that's at the heart of the gospel. That's what at the heart of why Jesus came. Um, this is what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. And this, by the way, this gospel of Jesus is not a message of tolerance. It's not a message of all roads lead to the same place. It's not a message of we're all God's children and God loves all of us. It's not a message of, well, all religions just boil down to the golden rule, so just do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's not a message of, and this is one we, we hear a lot, even, even in our churches, God understands, so don't worry about your addictions and your bad habits. Doesn't matter to him. Do what you want to do. Is that the message of John the Baptist? <laughs> I think he said repent. <laughs> repent and be baptized. The message of the gospel is repent and believe the gospel. The way to prepare the way for the Messiah is to repent and turn and believe. Not to say, well, I think God understands my weaknesses. He made me his way anyway. Therefore, it's okay with him. And to give barely a passing concern to him, passing thought to him. At its heart, the gospel is a message about the forgiveness of sins. I read a book once. Um, it's probably still on my shelf somewhere. I didn't feel like digging it up. I have too many books at home to sit there and try to find some little book. Um, it was written by Jack Hayford. Jack Hayford, for those of you who don't know, was at one time he would have been the most famous Foursquare pastor in the world. Um, he's up in his 80s now, and you don't hear his name so much anymore. But at one time he was certainly the name in our denomination. And he wrote a lot of books. He was a very prolific writer. And one of the books he wrote was called Fatal Attractions. And the subtitle of Fatal Attractions was Why Sex Sins Are Worse Than Others. And he tells the story of Eliot in that book, illustrating how sexual sins just have a way of compromising a believer's confidence and compromising a believer's sense of being able to walk in authority. And many of you here know exactly what I mean. When you're struggling with sexual sins at whatever level, you tend to doubt your relationship with God. You tend to doubt whether God can use you in ministry. They, they have, take a real toll on our lives. And Pastor Jack makes some excellent points that, sure, sin is sin. Sin is sin, period. But sexual sins seem to scar us more than a lot of other kinds of sins. Um, they tend to condemn us more. They tend to make us despair spiritually more. And they can make us question whether God can really forgive us more than other sins. And Pastor Jack said that one time he had a pastor come to him who was broken over something that had happened in college, some kind of a, a sexual sin that he had participated in in college. And one of the points I want to make here is that people don't usually come to the pastor to confess that years ago they used a bad word. They don't usually come to confess that 15 years ago I stole a, a pen from my employer and I can't seem to get past it. What do they confess? They confess the things such as sexual sins and you know the, what we might call the biggies. 
And my point here is not to talk about sexual sin or to talk about big sins versus little sins. My point, and I don't want you to miss this morning, is that the good news of the gospel is that God goes right to the core of the issue and deals with the necessity for us to have our sins forgiven. And the gospel offers forgiveness of sins at the deepest of our core. Meaning, the sins that affect us the most, the ones that we have trouble believing that God could ever forgive or has ever forgiven. And it's in those places, those ones, you know, whatever they are for you or me, whatever they are, that make us question, has God really forgiven that? Can he really forgive that? It's that those ones that we think of most, when anybody starts talking about our own personal sin, that we can have confidence that the gospel goes at the very core of them. It doesn't just address what we might think of, well, they're the smaller thing. Be, no, it addresses the ones that make us think, I'm not sure God can forgive this. I'm not sure I can get past that. And they are the very ones, along with all the rest, that the gospel goes to the very core of and addresses in presenting to us the possibility by God's grace to be completely and forever forgiven of that. As God puts as far as the east is from the west, our trespasses from us. And in the tradition of Stephen Jobs, one more thing this morning. The Messiah would not only mean the possibility of forgiveness of our sins for all who repent and believe, it would also mean the beginning of, the end of, our enemies, of those who oppress us. Now, I don't know what you think of when you read that. Maybe you think of the first century Christians under the Roman boot. Maybe you think of Christians today in China who are being persecuted. I don't know what comes to your mind. But the Messiah would mean not just forgiveness of sins, but also the beginning of the end of oppression in our world. More and more, I think that believers are today realizing that this present world in which we live is becoming more and more unfriendly towards Christians. Um, <clears throat> we Americans have a hard time um, <clears throat> not being shocked with the increasing anti-Christian sentiment in a nation where we're just not used to experiencing it. Many who came to America seeking religious freedom are beginning to wonder what kind of nation have they come to. I think, Michael, I think you've said a few things like this. You can't believe some of the things that you're seeing in the United States that you didn't think you'd see here. I think I've heard you, you say that. And we have every reason to be concerned. We saw the removal of prayer from public schools in 1972. 1973 saw the, the legalization of abortion with the Roe v. Wade decision. We saw, not too many years ago, the end to a ban on same-sex marriage. And then since then, I don't even want to mention verbally the advancement of what we've, what we've seen. I mean, it's, it, gets, it gets to the point of being unspeakable, where you don't want to speak of it. You know, it started with 
starts with things like um, shared locker rooms and junior high to polygamy to bestiality and the celebration of all kinds of perversion, which is mainstream, not not just you know done in a corner somewhere. And nobody's talking about it. But it's mainstream. It's in mainstream media. It's in the movies that are on our Netflix channels. It's it's out there. It's acceptable. The overwhelming concern of young adult believers, of which we have a number of in our church here at Family Life Church, is not what people are doing somewhere in the privacy of their homes. That's not the overwhelming concern of young adult believers in this room today. The overwhelming concern is how much longer will we be able to raise our children the way we want? How much longer before the state says that to raise your children as Christians is unacceptable, that it's, it's a crime against the state, that it's anti-government and it needs to be, be punished. How much longer before the state accuses us of brainwashing our children and snatches them from us? How much longer before Christians become the enemy of the state? I read this article that um, somebody passed on to me yesterday about, um, I won't tell you who it's about, it's about a, a leading um, news anchor in the, in the country. And it was very telling because he claims to be a Christian, but his position is that Christianity is something that you practice on Sunday morning only, that you shouldn't let it enlighten your positions. You're, uh, uh, of what you stand for. That that's not, Christianity is just something you do behind closed doors Sunday morning. That's his view of what it means to be a Christian. I wonder, well, have you ever read the scripture? Have you ever read what Jesus said about laying down your life? I just, it's incredible. And yet this is a, he's have, unfortunately he has a mainstream opinion. The Christianity, well, sure, you can be a Christian, doesn't matter. Just don't let it impact your view of marriage, your view of the sanctity of human life, your view of sexuality, your view of, of ethics and morality. Just, just, just keep a nice little you know, religious face and we'll all be happy. And increasingly, that is you know, the world in which we live. Um, <clears throat> if you think I'm overstating it, maybe some of you do, all I can say is wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> Look at what's going on around you. Don't think you can put your head in the sand and it will all go away and you'll be able to continue to live your comfortable life as a believer without hostility and opposition. Wake up and smell the coffee and join me in praying for genuine revival. Revival doesn't mean a time when we can again be comfortable. Revival means repentance before God. Putting Him first, making Him first turning from our sins, the things that we're, we're doing, the things that we have grown acceptable with. They, oh, it's okay. You know, I'm comfortable with my sin. It's, it's fine. It's not that bad. It's not that big. Join me in praying for that kind of revival to sweep our country and to sweep the nations of, of the world. Um, we never really know where we stand in the prophetic timeline of the Scripture. I don't, anyway. If you do, God bless you. Uh, what, I do, what I do know is the Bible says God is not delight in the death of the wicked. He is not delight 
in seeing people condemned to hell. He did everything possible to keep that from being the final destination of people. He is not willing that, that people perish and enter an eternity separate from it. That's not what he wants. It even says he's, he's, he's waiting to come back because he's not willing that any should perish, that there still be some that come in. That's the heart of God. And that's why I cannot do anything but keep praying, Lord, for revival, for hearts to change, for churches in our country to be renewed, for pastors that have left the word of God to preach some popular message that people say, oh, that's a great, great message, pastor. It doesn't say anything. It wasn't biblical, but it made us feel good. I pray that pastors that, have, that were once believers of this that left to preach some other doctrine would return. And I don't know, I don't know why it doesn't happen. I, really, I keep wondering why it doesn't happen. Uh, one reason I have trouble believing that, I'm way off my notes here, is that I just know how, how severely God deals with me. I think, well, why doesn't everybody feel that, that incredible conviction that makes you feel so guilty and like, okay, Lord, I need to get back with you right now. I cannot live outside of you. I cannot be there. I have to be with you. So join me in praying for revival in this nation. And it might be a um, you know, trite saying, but it always starts with us. It start, it's not, Lord, everybody else needs to repent. I'm fine. It starts with us. So, amen. Okay. <clears throat> so I bring all this up today not to, to frighten you. I'm not wanting you to go away from this message and have panic attacks or to be overwhelmed with, with anxiety or to be, just be wringing your hands with the state of the world. Not at all. I mean, you can't go from the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah to being overwhelmed with anxiety and panic. You really can't. I'm rather calling your attention to the fact that God sees your grief over the world and he hears your prayer and he sees your fear. That's really part of what Zechariah's song is all about. That God has heard. He understands and he is coming now to visit. He's coming to save. Verse 71, that we will be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear all of our days. I wonder what you expected this morning when you came to church. Knowing that it is the third Sunday in Advent, I wonder what kind of Christmassy message you thought you might hear today. Well, now you know exactly what kind of message you are going to hear because you've just heard it. God keeps his promises he has come to us. He has seen our fears and he's heard our prayers. He has provided a savior for our personal sin, even the ones that haunt us the most, that we might serve him freely without fear, without condemnation. And one day he will most assuredly vanquish all injustice.